0: I told Craig after last service that he reminds me of Bruce Hornsby. Any of you remember Bruce Hornsby in the Range? Mandolin Range? Mandolin Range? Yeah, okay. All right, I, I always throw those bands out to see how hip my audience is, but I guess, whoa, right over there. <laughs> Bruce, uh, thank you for having me. It's a good sign when I'm invited back. I guess I didn't offend enough people. So thank you. I'm really honored to be here. I had you and my daughter here, Haley, nine, nine years old, going into fourth grade. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, home improvement today. And to start out, I want to show you some clips I took from a movie that came out in 1986 called The Money Pit. And uh, John and Tom, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to show the whole thing this time, so I want to get back up on the platform if you guys can just bring it back up uh, or dim it down. I appreciate it. So let's, let's roll this. Oh, off the way, off the way, off the way. I would like to reach out my hand. Oh, best sail, oh, best tell you to run. Off the way, off the way. And nobody's in, nobody's on. Well, pick me up. Субтитры coming down in the bedroom. Oh, well, I'll get to that later. I only got two hands. Okay. Okay. Plumbing's not perfect. We'll get it fixed. It's not the end of the world. You didn't see that water. Look, this is an old house. It's going to need some work. You've got to expect that. A little work, a little care, a little imagination, and it's going to be great. It's going to be fun fixing it up. You'll see. I don't know, Walter. I've never been any good at that kind of thing. What kind of thing? Work. Work. I think Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Kitchen, nothing trivial. Well, the turkey's done. So is the kitchen. I feel much better. All right. I think you. (laughs) I think that laugh is one of familiarity—that you've gotten into a project and you realize it is a little bit more than you bargained for. Uh, I've had the last two weeks off, which uh, is not always a good idea when you stay in town because the phone still rings and there are still issues that need to be addressed. So I decided that to save myself the cost of a contractor, um, I decided to paint the exterior of my home by myself. And yeah, I'm saving money. But one of the things I've discovered because, you know, houses look relatively decent shape from a distance. When we start getting up close and you start looking at the wood and the siding, you realize that it's amazing that your house is even holding together because you have nails that are popping out all over the place. You have caulk joints that are failing. You have wood that when it was built, they just painted right over the raw wood. There was no priming involved, so it's, it's rotting. So what started out as a painting project actually turned into a home repair project. And I thought I would be done by now, but I've only got a couple of sides of the house finished because I'm spending a lot of time repairing parts of the house. And again, you get up on the ladder and everything looked great from down below, but then you get up there and you see that you have water damage, and now you know why your house whistles when it is windy outside. So I think every one of you knows what I'm talking about. It was when I went through about the sixth or seventh tube of caulk, that I realized that I had a lot of gaps that needed to be plugged. You ever experienced that? You know, well, I get a couple of tubes of caulk, that should do it. No, you just keep using this stuff, and you squeeze it into a gap, and it just keeps going, you know, and you think it's coming out in some of one of your outlets somewhere inside the house. So I've been spending my time tapping nails back in, actually replacing nails with uh, deck screws, and I get this caulk. You know, you've been to Home Depot, some of you have, and you go there and you see that they advertise caulk, as being how many year warranty 35 50 i've seen 50 now that means the caulk will still exist in 50 years but it may not be on your house okay because you pull that stuff off like rope licorice it just kind of comes after a while you start at the bottom and at, of your house and you, you begin pulling it and you realize that it's not holding on to anything it's just sitting there so yeah it'll last for 50 years but not stuck to your house So just be careful when you buy that stuff. It's a total marketing trick. So I'm replacing these cheap nails and I'm doing all this stuff. I'm putting on 35 year guaranteed caulk. I'll be dead by then. You pull off the old wood, you replace it. So I've decided that Home Depot should really be renamed. It should be Home Decompose because after a while, and you can almost hear this when you're sitting in your house. Can you hear your house falling apart? You know that time and temperature and weather is is ravaging your house, and you can almost hear the nails popping out of the siding, and you know that at some point you're going to have to invest some time or money into this project and get somebody to either do it, or in my case, hey, let's just take my vacation time and let's save money. And of course, I picked the two hottest days of the summer to do that. Now, there is a parable in all this. Something physical that teaches us a spiritual lesson, and besides, next time, save your money and hire a contractor. That's not the lesson. There is another lesson to this. And in order to make that bridge, I want to take you to Mark chapter 13, verse 1, talking about buildings. This picture was taken in Israel. This was um, a little model that they had set up near the shrine of the book where they have the Dead Sea Scrolls in Jerusalem. And so we walked around this little model, scale model, of what the old city of Jerusalem looked like after the temple was completed by Herod, actually his sons. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, we read, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings now we 're looking at this from a model perspective and from a distance, but this was a magnificent it was one of the ancient wonders um, ancient wonders of the world. How in the world they put this thing together there 's no question that this facility this 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 whole plateau, the highest point in Jerusalem, built around that Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed to Isaac. This whole structure, this temple mount, is an impressive structure. When you look at some of these things, 20 football fields in uh, land area, 20 football fields, great colonnades or porches that surrounded the whole thing. These columns were about 37 feet high, 6 feet in diameter. And how they got them up there, we have no idea. All these Corinthian columns, the royal stoa, Josephus, who was one of the people outside of the scriptures, it actually gives us a lot of insight into what took place in the first century. The Royal Stoa, which is this building being pointed to here, it extended along the whole southern end of the of the Temple Mount. And it was about 100 feet high and it was 600 feet long and it contained 160 of these columns ranged in four rows. It was the largest building. That existed. In fact, that's where uh, Jesus drove out the money changers. That's where money was exchanged for sacrifices for people who didn't bring one. And Josephus says, "quote A structure it was a structure more worthy of description than any other under the sun." We have what's visible, and then we have what's not visible. We have these stones. These stones that are very uh, clearly ones that were built by Herod, because you can see how they were beveled on the edges. And they were not put together with mortar. You could not slide a piece of paper between the joints. And how in the world they, um, they chiseled these into place. They say that the heaviest pieces may have weighed up to 370 tons. And today the, the, the greatest amount of weight that a modern crane can lift is about 250. We don't know how they got them in there. And this is not just on the bottom. These are stacked. The longest one of these is about 41 feet long by 11 and a half by 11 and a half. And we don't know how they got them from the quarry up onto this, up to these walls, how they built these retaining walls with these massive stones. That picture down on the right is one from, from the rabbinic tunnel, and you can see what pristine shape they are because they were actually um, below grade. But they have discovered these now, and it's still a mystery as to how they did this. We learned during our trip to Israel, and I think Todd emphasized this, probably you've heard this too through his messages over and over again, that Herod was interested in one thing, and that was making a name for himself and that he would be remembered. And you can see why, because these stones are still standing, even though the magnificence and the glory that was once the temple are no longer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And to the Jews, we've got to remember that this temple mount, was really the center of everything that they did. It was their national identity. It was where they sacrificed. It was the presence and, the, and the, the home of God. And there was a rabbinic saying, we don't know who said it, but it goes like this. The world is like an eye. The white of the eye is everywhere else. The iris is Israel. The pupil is Jerusalem. But ah, the gleam in the center of the pupil, that is the Temple Mount. And we're watching that place with great interest today because it's the most important piece of real estate on the face of the earth it's presently occupied and owned by the muslims but we know at some point according to revelation that there will be sacrifices again being in operation on this place in this very spot in order for that to happen the jews will have to have ownership of it again can you imagine how that would happen if the jews took over the temple mount what the muslims would do to one of their holiest sites it is the holiest site for the jews We know that's going to happen. We don't know how. But this is an extremely fragile, volatile part of the world, and we watch it with great interest today, and we've only begun to see the beginnings of birth pangs. Luke chapter 21, verse 6, gives us another account of Mark's interpretation of these events. Because in Mark's interpretation in verse 2, when they said, Lord, look at these massive stones, look at these magnificent buildings, Jesus responds in Mark, and he says... Do you see these great buildings? You see them. Look at them. Not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And in Luke's version of this, he says, As for these things which you're looking at, a day will come when there will not be one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Jesus says to them, It is impressive. They are magnificent buildings. It's amazing what men can do with the mind that, God, I have given them It is amazing what they can come up with. It's amazing how they can engineer. It's amazing how we understand what beautiful is and magnificent is. We are creating the image of God. So certainly what we create are magnificent things. But this picture taken a few weeks ago, and you see Todd at the arrow there standing on the rubble. That's what's left of those magnificent stones, those massive stones and those beautiful walls These things which you're looking at, a day will come. And that day was 30-some years later when the Romans showed up and decided that they were going to purge Jerusalem of the Jews. And so the prophecy came true. But what was Jesus' point? He said, don't get too attached to this. Don't fall in love with this place. It's a rental. At some point, it's not going to be here any longer. And can you imagine, as they watched this thing go up since their childhood, 40 some years to build this thing that they could even imagine that something like this could be torn down. It's like watching the caulk on your house separate. You know, it's just a matter of time because nothing lasts forever. Nothing stands forever. Don't get too attached. You've trusted in what appears to be something permanent. Don't because there is nothing permanent. This is something that is temporary, but it will like everything else go away. When it talks about these stones will be thrown down or torn down, depending on the translation you're using, that word literally means to loose down. It would take a lot of effort to loosen stones of this magnitude. And you can see in this other picture from a few weeks ago, the impact that when the Romans knocked these walls down and how they did it, I have no idea. But they had to have had some major torque to get those down. This was the street that was right below the western wall, of the Temple Mount and you can see what happened when these stones landed. They've been since removed, but it's, it created a great impression upon the ground. This is a street that was actually in an area like shops right below the, the, Temple Mount, um, stones that Jesus himself would have walked on. But these are now, there's a big impression where all these great stones that the disciples were so enamored with are now where they landed. And you can imagine with such force that they created that kind of indentation. So be prepared Jesus was saying for a day when all that you have taken great pride in, all that you've looked to for security and comfort is going to be gone. And what will you do then? In fact, the news doesn't get much better within just a few pages of the Gospels. In Mark chapter 10, for instance, Jesus talks about his own destruction. Now, think about this. These guys are just beginning to believe that they might have on their hands the guy, the one the anointed one, Messiah, they might have him. Because Jesus spent all this time trying to validate, demonstrate that who he was, who he says he was. This is no mere prophet. This is no mere rabbi. This man was actually God. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, he says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles. Would you want to go to Jerusalem with that kind of prediction? And they will mock him, spit on him, scourge him. In other words, they will humiliate me, and then they will kill me. Do you think they heard the rest of it? Three days later, I will rise again? Just when you're beginning to believe, he tells you that he is going to be delivered up by the Jews themselves, and he will be not only killed, but before that, he will be mocked. He will be humiliated, and then he will be nailed to to a cross. And then just a few short chapters later, probably within days, he's walking around this massive temple mountain. He says, you see all this? Don't get too comfortable with it. There won't be one stone upon another that will remain. It will all be torn down. Oh, this is great news. Thank you. I will be taken from you, the one who we have placed our hope in, are beginning to actually believe you are who you say you are, and then you're going to take away the house of God. Forty-some years it took to build this thing. Jesus in another passage said, Build this temple and in three days it'll be destroyed, talking about Himself. Where is their security going to lie? Because all the things that they were hoping in and trusting in were about to be destroyed. The glue of hope, security, everything that was familiar to them, gone. Lord, give us something to hold to, have you hold on to? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever said, I need a handle right now, because I don't know what's happening? In my life, I believe that you are God. I believe that what you do, you do for a reason. And I do believe that you love me. I hold on to that. Even sometimes it's as thin as a thread. But I believe that. But what happens when the hinge pin gives way? What happens then? What are we holding on to? And I'm asking you that question right now. What are you holding on to? What is keeping it together for you? Because there's going to come a time. And those of you who've lived a little bit longer, you know that you don't have to ask for it. It will come. It will find you. I had this, this experience of my life seemingly coming unglued in 1999. I remember sitting in the radiology department at Penrose Main Hospital in Colorado Springs where I was living with my wife at the time. And we had just had a, a beautiful daughter, now nine, and she was three weeks old at the time. We had prayed and we had gone through, for seven years. We had gone through infertility treatments. If any of you have been through that experience or are in it, you know how nothing is hidden. There is no modesty whatsoever. Your life is literally laid open and it takes a lot of romance out of your relationship. But you want to have a child. You, you, you pray about it and you go through the proper procedures and the Lord just didn't seem to be answering. But at, we started the adoption process and at some point um, I get the phone call that your wife is pregnant. Well, after the delivery, which was one of the most incredible days of our lives, um, we get, my, my wife gets home. She had a cesarean, so there was some major recovery time for that. And there was a problem. She was never able to be comfortable. She was, she was in pain. She had some type of abdominal pain that would not go away. And so they readmitted her to the hospital for a week, and they put her under observation, and they gave her IVs intravenously. And this thing would not clear up. So they said, we're going to have to put her into surgery. So they put her into surgery, and I thought, okay. Um, The the furthest thing from my mind was anything that would have a lasting impact or effect. And after the surgeon comes out of the, the operating room, he says to me, he noticed that her colon had been perforated. There'd been a hole that had had been eaten through it, and that's why it was spilling uh, bowel into her abdominal cavity. So they took clean margins, and they reattached the good pieces and sewed it up, and uh, they removed the the bad piece. And And he happened to say to me, surgery went well, but then he says to me, which I thought odd at the time, and there was no sign of cancer. Oh, okay, 38 years old. Why would she have that anyway? I don't even think they screen for most cancers until you're 50. That was fine. I was, I was unemployed at the time, and three days later, I was at a job interview, and I get a call from the surgeon. and He says, we've received a biopsy report, and Mr. Siri and your wife's tested positive for colon cancer, 38 years old. Um, that, my world went upside down at that moment, and that began a three-and-a-half-year process of us trying to treat this, this hideous disease. That stole everything from my wife and from us. I would have never thought that that would have happened. So I'm sitting there in the waiting room three weeks afterwards. They're doing a CT scan to make sure that we want to know the extent of the cancer. I'm unemployed, wondering how I'm going to pay for all this medical care. I have a three week old, and I'm looking up at the TV in the waiting room. It's April 20th, 1999. And there happened to be something going down in Littleton, Colorado at a high school. And I thought, something's going terribly wrong in this world. I am now the husband of a cancer patient. I have a newborn and I can't support my family. Do you think my life was coming unglued at that point? Some of you have been there. In fact, I had people come up from the first service and they gave me some stories. And it just it just tears your heart out. And you go... Where is God in all of this? What is he up to? Because if I had any sense of security, if I had any sense of tomorrow is going to be a better day, it was gone. And especially as a man, how do, you, how do you react to that, gentlemen, when you are used to being able to take a hammer or a can or a tube of caulk and fix something? And we're fixers. If there's something wrong, tell me what to do and let me do it. I had no handles, Nothing. Nothing. And that's why when I saw this passage, it reminded me when Jesus said, you see all this around you? Don't get too close because it's temporary. It will come down. The loose stones, the stones will be loosed down. They will come down eventually. And it did. For me, my family, it changed our lives. And countless chemo later, three surgeries. One of them, they had her open for nine hours trying to get all the cancer out. Eventually, it metastasized to her colon, and we moved to Kansas. I got a job as a city manager in a small town in rural Kansas, and that is where my wife passed away, and my daughter was three, and she was my wife was 40. And what happened to her in the last few weeks and months, if you've been around a terminally ill patient, you understand that all you can do is try to make them comfortable and manage the pain. And I asked for God's severe mercy. I said, please don't let me watch this any longer. I've watched this for three and a half years. This woman went from 130 pounds to 90. Skin and bone, bed sores. I don't have to go into more description than that. But I was put in a place, God allowed me, required me to see that. And I look back on that now and I go, how did we get up in the morning? How did we go one more day? Have you experienced that before? It's hard. It's hard. What was the glue? Because the glue, the joints were pulling apart. The stones were falling one after one after one. And everything that I thought was something that I could give to my family was, un, was, was worthless. I had nothing. I had nothing. I was being stripped of everything. And I had to watch this woman suffer and I could do nothing. Well, Everybody has to come to that point in their lives where they has, have to ask questions because you, you're, you're, you're hit in the face with this. What is true? What is true right now for me? Where is my security? Because I felt like I was standing on a trapdoor that opened. What is true that can never, ever change? It is true for me, it is true for everyone for all time, and it cannot be altered. Where is my security? It was severely tested. Where can I stand? I want to find sure footing again where the ground underneath me will not collapse. And as, again, man, I can easily walk up on a ladder and I can pound nails back into siding, but I didn't know what to do with this. I had no idea. Are you at the point in your life where you realize how fragile life is? Have you come to that place where you understand how with a phone call Things can change. And some of you have received those phone calls, some of you, where in a, in, in a minute, everything that you thought was secure, guaranteed, was questioned or brought into question. No matter how many sandbags we put around our foundation, there's going to get water in it. It's going to get passed somehow, some way. But you know what's interesting is that God, in his wisdom, allows the water to, to penetrate. He allows temple stones that are beautifully cut, massive, put together and form a, a magnificent, glorious house of God to be turned into what you saw up there, rubble. He allowed his son to be humiliated, mocked, beaten, spit on, crucified by by executed by crucifixion, slow, painful. Am I any different? Does he allow certain things in my life to happen? even though it seems at the time cruel and insensitive and cold. Well, when you come down to this point in a a message, and I can tell you're all really excited about hearing something as difficult as this, and my purpose is not to bring you down. My purpose is to give you hope. Because I thought about how do you land a plane? How do you land a message like this? Where do the wheels come down? Because you know what we're looking for? We're looking for a method. We're looking for three steps. We're great at this. We're so great at saying here are four ways that you, too, can be closer to God. But, you know, none of the four ways ever includes tragedy. They've noticed that because you cannot produce it. It'll come somehow, some way, in your own unique variety. So how do I land this plane? Because it's been six years now uh, since my wife passed away. What do I do with that? Well, what I do is I stand here as I, and I've talked, as I've talked to other people. And I said, there is so much that we don't know so much that we have not yet seen with our eyes that we have not experienced yet that God has reserved for those who love him because it seems awfully cruel. And, you know, every one of us, I think at some point says, if I were to write a book about my life, what would be the title to Helen back a comedy of errors? Well, that's been taken. What would be the title of your book in where you are right now? And I thought a lot about that because, you know, we're all about writing books and our story is supposed to be your story, but it's not. My story is very different from your story. You have your own pain. You have your own disappointments. See, it's interesting. My wife struggled with this disease for three and a half years. Did we have people praying? I was a pastor at the time she contracted this. Did we have an army of people praying? You bet we did. Did we have people anoint her elders with oil? And pray for her healing? Absolutely we did. We had great oncologists living in late 20th century medicine. Onco- oncological science. We are so far advanced. We had all of that. We prayed for seven years for to have a child. We have, we Lord provided, but then he took away her mom. Now, if you just go with the with what's observable, does that seem like the heart of cruelty to you? Let's face it. There are times when we want to clench our fist not physically but in here and say how dare you how dare you and I had that conversation with him but a few times I gave my life to you I've served you in ministry I spent all those years sweating it out in seminary what's what good is it where's the payback did the father ever for a minute stop loving me or my wife did he no, not at all. He gave me something else that I wasn't able to see until I had passed through some of this fire. And it's not something that we grasped without it. And the word of God takes on a whole different flavor, does it not, when our life experience doesn't seem to line up with the way we thought it would. Doors are open and windows are flung open that we never thought would be until God gives us an experience of watching the walls fall down of something that was once magnificent, that was massive. We're so caught up in how everything around us seems to provide some level of security and comfort. Jesus says, don't get attached. Be careful. So here's three words. Are you ready for this? I'm not going to give you a method. I'm going to give you three words that the Lord has said to me over and over and over again to, to get me out of bed and to remind me that there is more to life than what happens to, to this body, this temple, because my temple's falling apart. Not just the one in Jerusalem. Do you ever notice that? The, the, not, it's not just the floors that squeak in my house. It's my joints. I don't care how much glucosamine you inject into yourself. You're gonna you're gonna you're falling apart, folks. I mean, let's just face it. The nails are popping out, left and right. We got so many artificial parts, like Mr. Potato Head. There's got to be more because we see what happens over time when the glue starts to fail and the, the nails come out. Three words wait for it. How's that for encouragement? Let me tell you what I mean by that. I like things that are cooked in the microwave. I'm a single parent. Thank God for Marie Callender. 37 years passed between the time Jesus predicted the fall of this once beautiful, massive structure of the temple until it actually happened. 37 years. In the verses following Jesus' prediction of the falling and the destruction of this beautiful temple, he goes into a long discourse about what will happen before his return, his reappearing in glory. That has yet to take place. In Acts chapter 1, he tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit's coming. In, in Lazarus' case, Lazarus was sick. Jesus knew he was sick. And what did he do? He waited. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. You mean there's a higher purpose in suffering? It's not about making everybody feel better. His sisters had to go through the pain of watching their brother die. And Jesus delays because his ways are different. He has a different agenda than we do. And he also wept. Very significant. Jesus remained in the tomb for three days. Why didn't he pop out a day later? Why didn't he pop out like the minute he was removed from the cross and declared dead? Hello. Now, that would have been interesting. Why three days? After the destruction of the temple... In AD 70, Israel was denied a homeland. Actually, they were denied it. That's actually wrong. They were denied a homeland or a place of national uh, identity ever since the Assyrians took them by force in 586 BC. So it's actually longer than 1900 years. You can add another 600 to that. So almost 2500 years, Israel was denied a homeland until 1948. It's a long time to wait. In Revelation, John is exiled on the island of Patmos. He's put there by one of the Roman emperors probably I think it was Hadrian and Jesus shows up and gives him this revelation and he shows him great things that are to come he's showing him how Jesus will come back with the armies of heaven behind him and he will wipe out all those who oppose him and he will take his rightful place as Lord and King in a new Jerusalem and he will also throw Satan into the abyss John didn't live to see it do you think John may have wanted a little payback by this point hard to say Moses got to go right up to the lip of the promised land, right to the threshold. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to go in. Forty years in the desert, 40 years being prepared to go to the desert. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, you can look at it, but you can't eat it. Not for you to have. He tells Peter, you're going to die as a martyr. Now, how would you feel if you knew that your life was going to end in the service of the gospel and you were going to be executed? Would that change the way you see your life right now? It would change mine. And you know what Peter does? He does exactly what I would have done. He turns around and looks at John. And he says, what about him? That's why Peter is, I thank God that he's he's recorded for all posterity because he, I would have done the same thing. Well, what about him? He's always mouthing off about being the one you love the most. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, if I want him to live to be an old man, what is that to you? You follow me. I want to put that on my wall my office. What is that to you? You follow me. I don't care what kind of house they have. I don't care what kind of stuff they have. I don't care if their life has been untouched by tragedy. Because we know what we do? We put ourselves on this island when we are in pain. And we say, no one understands the pain that I am experiencing. And you know what I've discovered? Until you understand pain you will never understand the cross. Because I now have someone that I understand had to go through what he did in order to give me something to believe in, to hope in. That's why I say wait for it. Everything that's listed up here, wait. Do you know there's something coming that if you were to be given a glimpse into it that you could hardly stand it? Paul had that experience. He was caught up into the third heaven. He saw things he couldn't even talk about. It. God gave him some kind of physical ailment, we think that caused him to have to keep his mouth shut. He kept him humble because he was going to go around bragging about it. Well, I think all the Christians would have committed suicide because they were so excited about what was coming. I'm exaggerating. But if we had a glimpse into heaven, would it make the time here, would it make it more understandable if we knew what was ahead? If we knew what glory, what, what, what wholeness, what living in pure righteousness was like? Would that cause us to hold on? It does me. Because when you're sitting by the bed of a terminally ill patient, and God has given me that opportunity over and over and over again, people who allow me into their life because they know I lost my wife to a terminal illness, I have a chance to sit with them. And they won't talk to their family. They'll talk to me. Why? Because I'm now a part of the brotherhood of pain. I understand that. And they will open up themselves to me. And they're looking for something. They're looking for a better country than this. They're looking for a better home. They're looking for a better life. Is this all there is? Jesus looks at the temple and he says, don't get used to this. Yeah, man is really smart and he's really creative. And he can do stuff with rocks that you wouldn't believe. But don't get attached because there's something coming. And he rocked the center of their world. And that's what God does. He says, your center was Jerusalem. Your center was me coming and overthrowing the Romans. Guess what? I'm going to be killed and the temple is going to be destroyed. Oh, good. I'm excited. I thought I was joining some kind of a group that actually had some kind of power. And Jesus says, wait for it, because there's going to be a power coming, but you have no idea what that is. And he will come upon you and he will do great things through you. And he did. And he does. But he took the center of their world from their little Jerusalem And he created an earthquake and he moved it over here. Is God trying to move you? I think the reason God allowed so much pain in my life at one, seemed like one concentrated time was because I was a squatter. I was sitting there going, you know, I've got some money in the bank. Family's healthy. I've got a car that runs. I got a roof over my head. I have all, you name it, whatever it is that we build around. And he says, but do you love me? Do you love me? Because all this stuff is the magnificence of what you've created around you, distracting you from why it's here for my glory. So don't fall in love with the house of God, Jesus said. It's a rental. What do you do with a rental if you've ever, if you were living in one or you've been in one? Um, do you put as much care into it as if it were your own? No. Our bodies are just temporary packages, aren't they? We're going to eject out of them someday. I call it the earth suit. i going to unzip it and walk right out. It's temporary. Thank God. We get a replacement warranty on this baby. Some of you say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> the nails are coming out. <laughs> Admire it. The, the, the incredible complexity of it, but don't fall in love with it. Fall in love with the one who made it. On his deathbed in Venice in 1324, Marco Polo was asked by the priest to recant all the things that he told them about the Far East, China, all of these tales. And you know what he said to him? I haven't described half of what I've seen. Well, I think that's exactly what the scriptures teach us. There is going to be a day, and it is coming, as sure as we're here, that God is going to open up a window. And he already has a little bit crack. We see dimly, but someday we'll see as clearly as day what is in store for those of us who wait for him. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. I want to end with this because we read about these great men of God, women of God in the faith hall of fame in Hebrews 11. And we go, oh, I can never be a David. I could never be an Abraham, a Sarah. I could never be a Samson. None of these people, all these people, were still living by faith when they died. See, it's, it's, it's the destination. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's What happens along the way is you're going towards this goal. When do we ever stop believing? They died still having faith, but they did not receive the things promised. How would you like that on your epitaph? Lived, died, didn't get the promise. I didn't find the prize in the package of cereal. Never got it. I knew it was in there. I just couldn't find it. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Does it ever occur to you that we seem like a fish out of water in this world? I'm trying to decide, do I want to be a fish? Or can I live out of water? There's something not right with everything. There's something that's deeply wrong with me. Ask my friends. There's something deeply wrong with me. Theres Something wrong with Todd. He tell you that to your face. There's something wrong with every one of you. There's something that's not right, that there's a wholeness that's missing. God has found that piece, and he's put it back, where it says, "You long for me, and your, your heart aches with a love sickness for me, and until you find me, all this other stuff is going to be a temporary and a very shallow replacement. So they welcomed this promise from a distance. They admitted they were aliens and strangers. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would, have, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. And guess what he says they were looking forward to? Heaven. I think our theology of heaven is pathetic. We think of it as one long, boring church service sitting on wood singing just as I am until you're about to puke. You laugh, but you have, we think about it. We're worshiping God for eternity. Do you get to sit down? Is there a coffee bar? Somebody going to rub my bunions? Am I going to have to stand there all this time? We're, we're, we have such a shallow view of the hope that is within us that we've reduced it to a long church service. God, help us. They're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I go to prepare something that's going to be unbelievable. It's where my wife is. It's where I will be. I hope you too. Wait for it. There's a song that came out in the 80s. I think all of life can be summed up by rock band lyrics from the 80s. I I just... (laughs) On a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, except that wasn't Israel. Hold on loosely. Remember that song? No, you don't. None of you. 38 Special. I'm just, yeah. We're going to play that after the service. We are. Hold on loosely. Don't get attached. You be good stewards of what God has given you, but know at any moment the hinge pin can come off and it can be taken away from you. We love. But we love beyond what's material and what's physical. Anything that can be destroyed. Because once it is removed, what's left? Jesus didn't describe nearly half of what awaits his children. And to describe another, to use another quote from Bachman-Turner Overdrive, BTO. The, the Reverend BTO. You ain't seen nothing yet. baby You just ain't seen nothing yet. I know that that's not a, maybe some of you feel like I just threw out some bird seed to you today instead of meat. But wait for it. Wait for it. Jesus did not fix everything around him. And if he did, it was to point people to his his father. That's what he's pointing us to. And I can say today, do I love being a single dad? It has its moments. Do I like dating? (laughs) Oh God, help me. I wish they did it. God did the old fashioned way. Put you to sleep, take a rib and wake up and (laughs) Hashimama. Where have you been? Old school. E-Harmony or E-Rib. Anyway, I think I better stop before I go off on too many other songs. I hope that you find some encouragement in this. God is blessing my life in ways that I would have never experienced otherwise than what he has taken me through. And he's given me this amazing young lady to love and care for. And um, I'm very blessed today. But is there a place in me that's been split in half? Uh-huh. Do I feel the pain? Yeah, I do. Do I end up bawling at a movie when there's a very emotional scene for no reason? Oh, yeah, I do. And uh, you all have that place that touches you very deeply. It's very sensitive. That's where we are. It's where God built us. It's a part of who I am now. But has God opened up a door for me to minister to people that are in pain? Oh, my goodness, people, we live in a world that is full of it. And our teenagers, too, by the way. They're not exempt. It doesn't matter how much life you've lived. All right, let's go to the Father. And I'll be done. Lord... Um, words seem very um, weak when it comes to describing the hope that's within us I long for the day when you show us clearly who you are you've revealed your word to us you've revealed who you are through the revelation of scripture and it gives us a glimpse but Lord it cannot replace ever being in your presence permanently and seeing you as you really are there's something in me that says I don't belong in this country in this world, I'm an alien, I'm foreign, I don't get it. but Lord, you told us that we are aliens and strangers. we don't belong here, but we've been placed here because your plan is to redeem all of men to yourself, to call them back to their creator, to not get enamored with how great a civilization we have built around us because you are all about relocating the center of our world. let you let us let you do it. Father, when things come into our lives that cause us to irritation and frustration and pain as you have allowed to come into all of our lives at some level, may we not become bitter. May we realize that you are moving us out of our Jerusalem to something that is far better, to a country that it, it, to where we can see you differently and love you in a way that we never knew before because you are passionately committed to loving us. And you've not just said it, you've done it. And I thank you that you love me. And most mornings, all I can say is, Jesus loves me, this is what I know. It's what I know. It's what's true. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Father, maybe one person here today has needed to hear this and be reminded they're not alone in their pain. Don't let them live on that island. Help them to see that there is a God who is pursuing them in a place that they feel utterly alone. And sometimes it's in the darkness where we see the light the brightest. Help them to wait for it. Hang on. And we'll trust you in the meantime because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.